All right, you can be seated. Well, Christmas is over, and we're thinking about New Year's. I'm sure everybody had too much to eat and enjoyed their families and everything. And now we're looking forward to 2019. Two more days, we'll be saying Happy New Year, right? And I am sure that many of you make New Year's resolutions. How many of you make New Year's resolutions? Actually, don't. I already know how many do. Uh, statistics say that 45% of you make New Year's resolutions. So you ever wonder what the top five are? What are the top five New Year's resolutions? Yeah, lose weight is the first one. Get fit, lose weight. Number two, get organized. Number three, spend less and say more. By the way, I read in December that 28% of all people are still paying off last Christmas and we're shopping for this Christmas. Enjoy life to the fullest and learn to do something exciting. Now, those are great New Year's resolutions, but I think in reality, most people's New Year's resolutions look much different from that. And it works something like this. 2016, I will try to develop a realistic attitude about my weight. 2017, I will work out five days a week. 2018, I'm going to work out three days a week. This year, I'm just going to try to drive by the gym occasionally, and we'll be good with that. You know, speaking of the gym, um, I, in my 20s, I, I was a gym rat, and I was in the gym all the time for an uh, hour and a half, two hours a, a day. And I always hated the first three weeks after New Year's, right? Because the gym was full, and I would just look at these people thinking, you know what? Why don't you just quit now so I can work out? Because I know you're not going to be here in about three or four weeks. But um, but uh, how about this? Only 75% of people make it through the first week on their New Year's resolutions. You want to know the, the total success rate? Only 8% of people ever keep any of their New Year's resolutions. And 24% of people who make them say they always fail. And so they never even try. But, you know, even though most people fail, I think it's good to have New Year's resolutions. And the reason for that is that part of a New Year's resolution is the evaluation process, right? It's, it's always good to self-evaluate and see where things are good, where things are not so good. And in evaluating your life, one must always ask this kind of a question. What are the most important components for my life? And how am I doing in those areas? I think all of us probably do that in one way or another. And when we think about our life as a whole, then we need to also ask this question, what are the most important things in, in life? And what are the most important things that, that we should be pursuing, that I should pursue? And when we think about this in, and every other pursuit in terms of importance, and in terms of reward, and in terms of satisfaction, the most important pursuit that we can have as believers is to pursue Jesus Christ. There is nothing more important. There's nothing more satisfying. There is nothing more rewarding than pursuing Christ-likeness in the Christian life. There's nothing in the world that compares to it. In fact, after conversion... Paul implant Paul says that God implants in all of us a hunger for Christ likeness in 1 Peter 2:2 2, 2, which we will probably be in next week he says Peter says um, did I say Paul I meant Peter like newborn infants long for the pure milk spiritual milk that you may grow thereby 
just like a baby is satisfied only when it receives its mother's milk, so we are satisfied when we pursue Christ in His likeness. This is so important that we understand this. The people are going through the world. They're seeking satisfaction. If I can just become a better me, if I can just make you a better you, if I can just attain this, if I can just get that, if I can just do this, then I'm going to become satisfied. And the bottom line is that God has hardwired everyone who has ever been born with a mechanism or whatever you want to say, whereby they can only be satisfied in knowing Jesus Christ. That is how in in the book of John, over and over, Jesus calls himself the living water. In John 7.37, he says, If anyone thirsts, come after me and drink. Every person in the world thirsts. And I'm not talking about physical. I'm talking about an internal, emotional, spiritual thirst. And the only way it can be quenched is through Jesus Christ. It can't be quenched by going to the gym five nights a week. It can be quenched by having a rewarding relationship with a human being because they always fail us. It can be quenched by uh, having a success or any of that kind of stuff. It can only be satisfied when we pursue Jesus Christ. But there are other reasons why we should pursue Christ-likeness and pursue growth. And I'm just going to list off some of them really fast. Number one, it glorifies God, doesn't it? It glorifies God. That is our primary purpose in life. Westminster uh, Catechism. What, what is the chief end of man? The chief end of man is to glorify God and enjoy Him forever. Number two reason to pursue Christ-likeness. It demonstrates spiritual life. How do you know that your apple tree is doing well? It, it bears good apples, right? Of course, we always take the, the credit for that kind of stuff, and it's actually God doing it all. I mean, you can't control the weather or anything like that, but go ahead and take credit for it if you want. But the same thing is, is true uh, when we pursue Christ, when we become Christ-like. It's a visible spiritual change in your life that results in the third important reason that we pursue Christ-likeness, and that is that it gives you assurance It gives you assurance of salvation when you can look back and you can say, I used to be like this and now I'm like this and God is working in me this way. And when there is spiritual life, it brings a sense that you belong to God and you can see his work. You can see your salvation. And a fourth reason I I could mention that that we should pursue Christ likeness is that it preserves you from the sorrows of spiritual weakness. And all of us at one time or another has experienced that sorrow that we have because we have failed God, because we have sinned, because we have we have um, um, done something wrong in this area, and, and this gnawing guilt that sometimes we have. And when you pursue Christ, and when you become more Christ-like, it it keeps you from that. It preserves you from what happens when you have spiritual failures or spiritual weaknesses. And so Christ. And His likeness is so important. So with, with 2018 closing out and 2019 rapidly closing in, what better, more valuable, rewarding pursuit could you have in a new year than to pursue Jesus Christ with all your heart? For 2018, or for 2019, uh, 
does anybody else ever get that wrong in your checks for the first couple of weeks? Okay, I'm good then. I would encourage you to have the goal that Paul expresses in Philippians 3.14. Look at it in your Bibles, if you will, uh, with me. Philippians 3.14. I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. We are called to pursue a prize. And that prize, what is the prize? Have you ever have you ever looked at that and wondered to yourself, what does Paul mean when he talks about this prize? What is the prize? Well, simply put, the prize is spiritual completeness or spiritual perfection. That's what we're striving for. We are called to pursue that. Now, we are to give our whole life to this. And that's why he uses that word press on. That, that word press on is the idea of to, to pursue or to run after. It's, it's strenuous activity to press on towards that prize. Paul doesn't say here, I'm just going to drift on toward the prize. What happens when you drift? Yeah, you go the wrong direction. Exactly. Drifting is, is always a bad thing. And so press on, pursue it. And so if you're going to pursue the prize, then you need to know the characteristics of somebody who pursues Christ likeness. And so let me say this, and we're going to jump in. In 2019, the most important thing that you can do is to pursue Jesus Christ. He's so rewarding. He's so satisfying. And there's so many benefits to it for us, and it glorifies God. Why would you not make that your number one pursuit? Well, if you're going to do that, what are the characteristics of someone who does? Well, let's look at verse number 12. Not that I've already obtained this, or am already perfect, but I press on to make it my own, because Christ Jesus has made me his own. The first thing that we have to do is realize that we haven't arrived we got a long ways to go. We haven't arrived. Paul didn't want anyone to be confused about the fact that he hadn't arrived. He didn't want to end up like the wizard in The Wizard of Oz. You remember the 1938 version of The Wizard of Oz? You remember what happened towards the end? Actually, probably at the very end of it, the wizard is just scaring everybody because he's so big and powerful. And what happens at the end of the movie? This little bitty dog... Goes up to the curtain, pulls the curtain back, and what do you find? The wizard is just some little bitty guy. And Paul is saying, I don't want you to think that I'm, I'm a big wizard, that I've gotten all the answers, that I'm completely Christ-like, because I haven't. I have a long ways to go before I become completely Christ-like. And he says this, he says, not that I've already obtained. Now I'm going to be honest with you. Obtained is a very sanitized version of this word. It's, it's very proper, I guess, would be the better way to put it. It literally means to seize, to grasp. It, it's like, an, if I can switch to the NFL for just a minute, when they tackle a guy, they don't just obtain him. They, they, grab, they grab anything they possibly can, and they'll grab anything they can get away with grabbing in the NFL, right? And, well, we won't go there. Uh, we trying to fix the NFL. But the idea is that to attain Christ-likeness, I haven't obtained it. I, I'm grasping for it. I'm reaching for it. I'm trying to, to seize Christ-likeness. And he says um, he knew that he had a long ways to go. And by this time, 
When Paul wrote this, how long have you been a Christian when he wrote this? This is one of the prison epistles. He'd been a Christian for 30 years, roughly. And he said, I, I haven't even come close. I haven't in, in come close to perfection or completeness. And, and, and I'm not satisfied with it. It reminds me of the quote by F.B. Meyer who said this, Self-dissatisfaction lies at the root of our noblest achievements. Self-dissatisfaction lies at the root of our noblest achievements. Whatever we achieve spiritually begins with dissatisfaction. I'm not pleased with where I am in my spiritual life. I'm not content with my spiritual condition. And so, if you would love Christ, you would say, I um, am not where I should be. And I want to get there. And so, I'm going to try to grasp it. It's the idea, we know that we have a long ways to go. Now, on the flip side of that, if you are sitting here and you are content where you are spiritually, you're in a very dangerous position. You say, well, pastor, uh, why would you say that? Well, I'm saying that because at is this point when you're content where you are, that you become insensitive to your sin. You justify sin. You don't mourn over your sin. Uh, you begin defending yourself in your sin uh, and when you should be admitting weakness and spirit and pursuing spiritual strength and so spiritual dissatisfaction is the way to become more christ-like that's an attitude second characteristic of somebody who's pursuing christ with everything they have is that they are urgently striving towards christ's likeness he he had not obtained it and so he says i press on to make it my own because jesus christ has made me his own can i put it in today's language He's basically saying, it kills me to not be Christ-like. That's what Paul's saying. He said, it just kills me that I'm not as Christ-like as I, as I sh- should be. The word here, press on, is dioko, which means to make haste, to move quickly and energetically towards an objective. His whole life is pressing on towards a, a spiritual goal. He's not just meandering around. He's got a purpose, and he's trying to get there as quickly as he can, as purposefully as he can. He's striving for Christ-likeness. It takes maximum effort using all the means of grace to pursue Christ-likeness. We don't drift, as I said a while ago. It's, it's intentional effort. And, and so the Hebrews says it like this. Remember Hebrews is this the first 11 chapters of Hebrews is describing the glories of Christ. And then you have this one chapter, chapter 11. We call it the Hall of Faith, but it's, it's basically summarizing everyone who's pursued Jesus Christ, pursued the promise, and didn't attain it in this life. And then they say this, Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us notice the attitude. Let us lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us looking to Jesus. That's what we're doing. We lay aside the weight. What in my life prevents me from pursuing Christ-likeness? It may not be a bad thing. It may be a very good thing. But too much of a good thing is too much of a good thing. 
because it, it keeps you from doing the most important things. So you lay aside the weight. You're confessing sin. And the whole time that you're doing this, you're looking to Jesus Christ. He's your model. He's your example. He's your Savior. Your eyes are fixated on Him. I tell you what, I just about, um, if I was Pentecostal, I would have been jumping around today when we were singing the song, the, the, the second, in the second set, the second song. And the, the name of the song eludes me right now. But you know what I'm talking about. And many of you have heard amening and stuff. We're looking to Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith. And, and it takes maximum effort. To strive for Christ-likeness is consistent with the purpose of our salvation. Look at it one more time. He says, I press on to make it my own because Christ Jesus has made me His own. In other words, what he's saying is, I'm, I'm pursuing Jesus Christ because this is why He saved me. He saved me to pursue Him and to pursue His likeness. Would you agree with that? Yeah, that's the whole New Testament. Almost every book of the New Testament is this is the doctrine of salvation and this is how you're supposed to act in light of that doctrine of salvation. And it's all this stuff that is Christ-like. It's how Christ act. And that's why Christ saved us. I'm working toward the goal that Jesus saved me for. And what is that goal? Second Thessalonians 2.14 To this He called you through our gospel now, there's, notice this. There's the truth. A lot of Bible verses are this way. Here's the truth. He called you through His gospel. And then there's a purpose. So that. So you're called to salvation. So that you may obtain the glory of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. The glory of our Lord, Jesus Christ. That's the goal. The goal is Christ's likeness. Which in turn, when you become like Christ, it glorifies God. Because you have in Romans 8.28... And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to His purpose. And a lot of times we stop right there because we're in the midst of trials and stuff. But look at verse number 29. Verse number 29 says, For those whom He foreknew, He also did what? He predestined to be conformed to the image of His Son. So we are saved to become like Jesus Christ. And when we become like Jesus Christ... He is glorified. Now, who here doesn't want to glorify God? It is so incredible to me that God saves us, calls us to be Christ-like, and when we pursue it, He's the one that works through us. And we'll talk about this in a minute. He's doing all the work. And then when He gets done doing all the work in us, we go to heaven and He rewards us for it. What other system... Can you think of where that happens? It's just incredible what, what God does. Well, let me keep mo- moving on. Third characteristic of somebody who pursues Christ's likeness is that they have a focused concentration on Christ's likeness. Look at verses 13 and 14. Brothers, I do not consider that I've made it my own, but one thing I do. One thing I do. And he sticks in a couple uh, conjunctives here or uh, subjunctives here. Forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead. Now, this is the one thing that he does. I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. This one thing I do. He's describing the absolute concentration of an athlete. 
And you think about it, athletes at an Olympic level have an amazing level of concentration. In fact, only totally focused people succeed of athletics, right? To that level. Uh, for that matter, in any other area of life, you're only going to succeed in an area of life when you're totally focused and concentrated on that area. You know, the world is full of people who are clever at many things and successful at nothing because they never focus their lives. Recall the volumes that have been written about uh, Steve Jobs, the deceased CEO of Apple. Love him or hate him, his, his focus on creating a simple product was legendary. If you remember, he took Apple from the brink of bankruptcy in the 90s to the most valuable country or company in the world on the day of his death. His, his ability to focus was, was legendary. And, and, um, and Paul was the same way. He focused on one thing. And the one thing he focused on was Christ's likeness. And through that, God used him in a mighty way because of his focus. Paul wasn't dabbling in athletics. Paul wasn't dabbling in this and that. He was focused on Christ's likeness. And there's two ways that he focused on this Christ's likeness. The first thing is that he forgot what lays behind. Paul, what Paul is saying in the context here is in order for him to focus, he's got to forget all the accomplishments of his Judaism. Because if you read chapter 3, the previous verses, before we get to our passage, he's describing all of his accomplishments in Judaism. He was, he was a rock star in Judaism. He was, he, was, he was the best of the best. He was a Harvard grad of Judaism, if you want to say that. And he was on the fast track. And, and he went to persecute the church and all that sort of thing before salvation. And, and he said, you've got to forget that kind of stuff if you're going to focus on Jesus Christ, athletes do the same thing. They can't rest on their laurels. They must continually press on. Let me throw out another athletic analogy. Think about Tom Brady. Tom Brady made the Patriots the franchise of the 2000s because he did not rest on his laurels. Now, that was really hard for me to say as a Cowboys fan. But it's absolutely true, isn't it? Nobody works harder than Tom Brady at what he does. He never rests on his laurels. Another guy who you may or may not have heard of named Sean White. He's a snowboarder in the Winter Olympics and the X Games. Gold medalist. The, the guy, uh, uh, my oldest son is a snowboarder, and we used to just be in awe of Sean White. If you look at his name, the list of firsts, the tricks that he performed, it's a massive list. And year after year after year, you watch Sean White as he got older and older. Everybody else looked like a junior high snowboarder compared to him. And the reason is that he never rested on his laurels. He was always working for the next big thing, refining and becoming better and better at the superpipe and, and the things that he did snowboarding. And how does he stay on top? He's always pushing, always looking forward. Uh, never looking behind. If you're going to grow in Christ, you cannot become complacent. You, you can't say, you know what, 2018 was just a great year spiritually. I think I'll coast in 2019. It doesn't work that way. 
you, you forget your accomplishments. Have you ever heard people in the churches glory in yesteryears? You hear people in the church say, well, it's just not like it used to be. I remember the good old days that we were all involved doing this. We were involved doing that. We were doing this. It was like that. And this is how it was. It was so great. And it's so absolutely irrelevant. It is. It means absolutely nothing because living in the past paralyzes you. Uh, going back to Sean White, he, he didn't go to the Olympics saying, well, you know what? You know, I didn't eat well last night. I ate too much pizza and I made so many mistakes yesterday. And, and beyond that, I drew the worst spot to go on the super pipe with. Uh, he didn't say that kind of stuff. Nobody would listen to him if he did. Nobody cares. Nobody is interested in what you did in your past. And God is only interested in what you are doing now and what you're going to do in the future. Would you agree with that? He is. Churches are full of people who hold on to all kinds of grudges and bitternesses and perspectives and jump for the past and they're paralyzed by it. Disappointments, temptations, uh, these things of the past, they must not depress you. 2018 may not have been your best year spiritually, but put your hand to the plow and don't look back and look forward into 2019. Tomorrow is full of hope in Jesus Christ. And so that's the second part of it. He says he reaches to what is before. So you forget the past accomplishments and, and disappointments and you focus on the future. And so he had a daily pursuit of his goal. He's running. He never gives up. He never slacks off. He never sits back in smug self-satisfaction. Instead of saying, man, I ran the race and I did good. I reached the goal. Or I ran the race and I burned out and I just gave up. He doesn't say any of that. He says, I'm running the race toward the goal. Now ask yourself this question. Everybody listening. Do you have that kind of focused concentration when it comes to your spiritual life? God is calling us to that. What are you focused on? You know, even as a minister of the gospel, my focus is not on building a big church. My, my goal in life is not to s- succeed in church. My goal in life is not to develop wonderful programs, to write a book. I already did that. Nobody, I think two people read it. And they were both professors. They were made to. My focus goal in life is to be like Jesus Christ. And when I become like Jesus Christ, my life impacts other people. You see how that works? Now let's translate that into parenting for just a minute. Can I do that? Parents, I guarantee you, the parents, you want your kids to be like Christ so bad, don't you? You do. You you want them to love Jesus like you do and so on and so forth. Let me tell you how to have how to be a good parent. You ready? Be like Christ. That's it. I mean there, there are a few more, but that's a major component. Your children need to see your love for Jesus Christ. They need to see your separation unto Jesus Christ. They need to see that you place Christ as a priority in your life 
And when that happens, they're going to want it. They're going to see it. And then you do everything you can to become like Jesus Christ. You teach them the Bible. You teach them life events. And then you pray like crazy that their life will change. That's parenting 101. If I teach a parenting class, that's basically what it's going to be. Oh, maybe a little bit more than that, actually. But, but you impact people's life. There's no techniques. Any kind of a book that says, do this and your kids will turn out right, needs to be burned. Right? Yeah, we understand that. We all have seen what happens. The most impactful lives for the gospel are the lives that are totally focused on Jesus Christ. So what does it take to effectively grow spiritually? First, an awareness that we have a long ways to go. Number two, an urgent striving for Christ-likeness. Third, a focused concentration on Christ-likeness. And fourth, we need to be motivated by the prize. Look at what he says. He said, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Notice that he calls the prize an upward call. It's more important than anything. It's more important than making money. It's more important than being uh, famous in politics. It's more important than having security. It's, it's the imagery of, of concentrating on the finish line and emphasizing that faith in Christ demands a constant discipline in keeping your eyes on the completion of the race. The future goal of winning the prize captured Paul's complete attention, set him free from the tyranny of the past, and filled his present life with the incentive to press on and take a hold of all that God has called him to do. And God has called you to a wonderful thing. You need to take a hold of it. You know what He's called you to do? He's called you to glorify Him. The most powerful, awesome being in the universe has given you one goal. And your one goal is to glorify Him. And you do that by becoming like Him. There's no greater goal on planet Earth. This meeting is the most important meeting going on in Culpeper County today. Because it's a meeting of the saints worshiping the God of the universe. What happens in Washington, D.C. is so unimportant compared to what's happening here today. What's happening when Christians get together and pray, and, and you name it, because they're glorifying the God of the universe. The goal is to be like Christ. The prize is to be made like Christ. What ha- what's going to happen when that upper call comes? You're going to be like Christ. The goal is the prize. The prize is the goal. The goal is the prize. The prize is the goal. Paul says, look, the goal of my life is to be like Christ, and that's the reward of my race. And you say, well, you're going to reach that goal in this life? The answer is no. But it's still the goal. One day I will be like Jesus Christ. But I'm never completely like Jesus Christ until that day. Whether I cross over into eternity or Christ comes back. One of the two that's when I'm completely like Christ. Until then, I'm just striving to be like Christ. That's my goal. And, and the prize is to, God gives everyone that runs a race is Christ's likeness. Now, what motivates me? What, what motivates you? It's the upward call. We, we live in light of the rapture, the second coming. We live in light 
of being called out of this world into the presence of God. And at that particular point, we will be given glory. We will be given eternal reward. We will be made like Christ. And if God is so gracious to be willing to give us that prize, then how committed should we be to run that race? answer is we should be totally committed to that, right? What a wonderful prize. Look at it this way. Can I say it a different way? Wretched, wicked, vile, godless sinners on our way to hell are picked up by the sovereign God of the universe, chosen for salvation in order that He might eternally make us His own Son. That is awesome. That is amazing grace. That's the prize. I don't know about you, but it motivates me to run towards the goal. Now, very quickly, let me give you a fifth characteristic if I can. Look at verse number 15. Let those of us who are mature think this way. And if anything, you think otherwise. And here's what I want to emphasize. God will reveal that to you also. The last thing that we have to do is we we need to recognize divine help. So we have this prize. We're we're going to attain it only when we die or go to heaven in the second coming. We are working towards it all the time. And it's so daunting. And every single one of us will admit that sin pops in our head all the time, doesn't it? And so there's this promise of divine help. Let those of us who are mature, meaning those who are pursuing God with all their effort, and the next two phrases are so interesting and encouraging, and if anything you think otherwise, God will reveal that to you also. Paul's confident assurance is in the sovereign power of God to change any person who does not have the same attitude he does. He's content to leave people to God's guidance. And he simply says, I have to leave you to God if you're ever going to get the message. And if you won't get it from me, then you'll have to get it from God. And that's literally the the process that every pastor goes through. Every, I don't know if I've described this to you before or not, but it works the same for me every single week. Friday afternoon, I turn in my slides to Gordon. I'm looking at my sermon. I'm thinking to myself, This thing's a rag. It's a piece of junk. Saturday morning, I get up. I I modify the sermon. I'm thinking to myself, Friday night, you know, I can just rewrite that thing. And so I rewrite it. And, and, And I'm thinking, I'm working really hard and I get done with it. And by Saturday night, I'm thinking, well, this thing's just a piece of junk too. And so then, so there's this despair on Friday and Saturday. Sunday morning, the despair turns into butterflies in the stomach and I wake up and I start begging the Lord, Lord, you know what I wrote. That's the best I can give you. Please take this and use it in people's lives. That's all I can do, Lord. All I can do is say words. You're the God of the universe that changes hearts through your word. And I pray and pray and pray and I walk in here I feel like I'm standing before the firing line or whatever you want to say because I know I've I've done my best and my best is not good enough. And then Sunday afternoon, there is this contentment, satisfaction that sweeps over me because you know what? God uses His Word. And He blesses human beings and He works through weak, 
human beings. And so when Paul says that God will, I'm confident God will reveal that to you, he knows what he's talking about because he's seen it in action. I see it in action. And it's so wonderful. And I want to take this back to parenting. One more time for parents. we got lots of parents and young people here. You realize that's the exact same way. God is working in your children's lives. You live a godly example. You be Christ-like. You read the Bible and study the Bible so that you can impart that knowledge. What does Deuteronomy, the Shema, talk about? So that you can walk by the way when you're in the doors and when you're sitting down at dinner and when you're working out in the field. You can impart biblical truth and biblical knowledge to your to your children. And then when they're asleep, you get on your knees and you beg the Lord to change their hearts. And you're confident that that's going to happen. And I remember one of our children just begging the Lord, Lord, please work in my child's heart. It was it was heartbreaking. I was I was just inside, just torn up when when they were a teenager. And I remember when they got saved and the difference in my child today and when they were a teenager before salvation is just so stark. And I have never in my life sat back and said, you know what? I did a pretty good job raising you. I've never said that. As a matter of fact, I always tell people, my kids turned out half decent despite my best attempts to warp them, right? But that's, that's parenting. That's, that's pastoring. That's shepherding. And that's what it looks like. God will work in your life and in mine. And He is working. And He's making you more like Jesus Christ And God works through means. And I want to close with this. He works through means. And what what do you mean by that, Pastor? What I mean is that God has tools that He works His work in your life through. It's not osmosis. You can't take your Bible and sit it on your coffee table and say, okay, Lord, do your work in my life. You take your Bible and you read the Bible. And then when you don't understand something about the Bible, you research and try to figure out what it means. And that wrestling through the Word helps you. And then you pray. That's a second means, isn't it? You pray, and God works through that means. And then you faithfully attend worship services and, and worship with other saints. And God uses that means. And you listen to maybe other sermons and podcasts on the radio. And God works through that means. And He's working through means, but you have to expose yourself to the means for Him to work in your life. We all understand that, don't we? So what am I trying to say about 2019? I'm trying to say this. There's no greater goal in your life, no greater commitment than to become like Christ. Is it worth your life's commitment to pursue Christ in His likeness? If the answer is yes, then you have to ask yourself this question. Am I pursuing the, crop, the prize? Am I growing? Or am I moving backwards? So in 2019, pursue the means. Pursue Christ through the means. It was mentioned this morning uh, to read the Bible through in a year, right? Yeah, try that. Whatever it is, try it. Get together with other faithful Christians. Have a Bible study. I, I love uh, getting together. One of the Bible studies I'm involved in is we, we work 
we study the Bible through the week and then we get together and talk about what we study. It's just awesome. I love that kind of thing. I press toward the mark of the prize of the high calling of God in Christ Jesus. Will you make that your New Year's resolution for 2019? We thank you, Lord, for everyone who's here. We thank you for your work in lives. We thank you that uh, we, we expose ourselves to your word. We listen to sermons. We pray. We keep our focus on you. We realize that we have a long ways to go. And in the end, you work your powerful work in our lives and we become more like Christ. And then we get rewarded for that. Lord, I pray that you will fill us with a church, with people in a church that pursue you with their single-minded focus. In Christ's name, amen.